And get out your uh, sermon outline. It says the survival of the church. We are in the book of Revelation. We're in chapter 7 today. And uh, things are starting to pick up. We have a bigger chunks uh, that we go through. We'll go through all of chapter 7 today. And... Uh, this is one of those difficult to understand chapters that uh, hopefully uh, by the end of this morning you'll have a little bit better understanding of it. And if you don't, you know, go ahead and tell me. <laughs> the, uh... But we'll want to go ahead and read this, turn in your Bibles to chapter 7. It's broken up in your outline and because it's so large, it's not all at the front, so it'd be easier. Uh, for you to go ahead and read it out of the, uh, your Bible. I always encourage you to bring your Bible uh, with you uh, on Sunday. We're in Revelation chapter 7. We'll read the entire chapter. Please listen carefully as this is the Word of God. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who'd been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000. Sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Nephtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulon, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them the springs of living water, and God 
will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word and making us your people. As we look at this vision of your people and what you do for your people and what you promise your people, remind us that we are among those who claim to be your people. Help us to live in accordance with your promises. Lord, help us to see Jesus as the one who both reigns over us and redeems us. Do this for each of us this morning. In the name of Jesus, with which we are sealed, we pray, amen. The doorbell rings on a Saturday morning, and there are two people standing on the porch, and they're offering you literature about the return of Christ. And if you question them, they might reveal that they're Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, their motives for door-to-door activity are not simply to gain converts for their movement, but rather to gain merit for themselves through their exemplary zeal. Their hope, faint though it may be, given the number of Jehovah's Witnesses worldwide, but their hope might be to become one of the 144,000 who will reign with Christ. And while there are certainly a number of more important uh, places at which Orthodox Christians would take issue with the Jehovah's Witnesses in terms of doctrine and theology, what they say about the 144,000 remains troubling simply because, for the most part, we don't know what this number means. And the problem with the number, is that it's clearly symbolic. But the question is, symbolic of what? And that's one of the questions that our text for today is going to answer. We have just gone through the six seals of God's judgment that were open. We saw that in Revelation uh, 6. We have new banners, Revelation banners today. And so the one over here you see on the left side, the six seals being broken on the scroll and the the horses. And on the right side is the 144,000. But at the end of Revelation 6, we were asked, it ended with a very sobering question. The very end of that chapter said, the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? And so between the sixth and seventh seals, specifically in answer to that question, who can stand, the Apostle John receives a double vision of the followers of Christ. And in this vision in Revelation 7, we get the answer to the question, who can stand? There are some who can stand and will stand, indeed a great multitude that will stand through all the shocks of life in this world and even through the final judgment of our Lord. Before John continues his account of the breaking of the seals, he inserts here in chapter 7 an interlude, a break in the action. He interrupts the flow of the narrative to give us some essential background. In this case, we go back to pick up the situation of the church as she stands together with the world, going to be one of those mornings. 
um, together with the world on the threshold of this great trial that's going to come upon uh, mankind at the end of the age. And then we move forward to see what uh, becomes of the church and where she'll be at the end. And this break in the action serves two purposes. First, it's given to reassure the church uh, that the upcoming, uh, the oncoming wrath of the Lamb against rebellious humanity, which we saw with the breaking of the sixth seal, will not be able to uh, separate them from the protective care of the Lamb. And second, it uh, dramatizes the delay between the ongoing judgment of God and the final judgment at the end of the age. So our text today gives us three visions of the church, all of which are true. So let's turn to Revelation chapter 7. We're going to start with the first vision. Perhaps you might call it the first scene, which is of the church secure. The church secure, verses 1 through 3. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who'd been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. One of the markers of the book of Revelation is that phrase, after this, it's not giving it to us in chronological order, but in the order of the visions, in the order of the things that John saw. And here we see there's four angels at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds from wreaking havoc on the earth until another angel is able to, to uh, come and give each of God's servants uh, his seal, the seal of the living God on their foreheads. And the destruction of the sixth seal is stayed until God's servants are sealed, which means this is not in chronological order, but takes place between the fifth and sixth seal. Okay, before that great judgment that we read about at the end of six comes, and that question, who can stand? Remember, he's taking a break in the action to answer that question. So the sixth seal has been told, but it hasn't happened yet. And he's going to seal the servants of God. And the significance of this seal, which seems obvious enough in the context, is a protection from the harm that God's judgment will bring upon the earth, is made even clearer when we get to Revelation 9 where we read after the fifth trumpet, you see the trumpets up there, we'll get after the seven seals come seven trumpets. There's a plague of locusts that descend upon the earth. Revelation 9, verse 4 says, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. We have a similar thing in Ezekiel chapter 9. Those of you in Rich's uh, Sunday school class on Ezekiel uh, may remember there, there's a vision. Ezekiel sees six men who are the executioners of the city. And then there's one man clothed in linen. And Ezekiel hears the Lord say to that one man clothed in linen, Ezekiel 9, the Lord said to him, 
passed through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others, the executioners, he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eyes shall not spare and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark. And begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house. And that mark would protect them from the judgment that was about to fall on the city. So much of Revelation is drawn from Ezekiel and from all the other prophets, Isaiah and Daniel. And of course, all of this should serve to remind us of the Exodus, where we remember back in Exodus 12, they were told to put the Passover blood on the, the doorpost to protect the Israelites from the avenging angel of the Lord on the night of the Exodus from Egypt. So here we have the servants of God are sealed. Now the seal is the name of Christ and of God. This becomes clear when we get to Revelation 14, where it says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Later in Revelation, we're going to see a satanic counterfeit of this gracious act of God, the sealing of God on his servants to protect them, there's going to be a counterfeit uh, one that Satan's going to do when those who worship uh, the beast are compelled to receive his mark of his ownership on their right hand or foreheads. We see that in Revelation 13. And the difference in terms is significant for the word seal implies security under the protective authority of God. The beast's mark can make no guarantees. However, don't be misled into thinking that God's seal promises believers that they're going to be spared from suffering. For Christ's summons to faithfulness, which pervades the book of Revelation, comes regardless of your circumstances, even if it, it brings one into suffering and even if it leads you into martyrdom. The call is for faithfulness despite the circumstances. So this protection then is, of course, spiritual. Believers die just as unbelievers do. They suffer the misfortunes of life. They perish in catastrophes. And even more so, the enemies of the gospel have often succeeded in killing them. And we know there's been more martyrs in the last hundred years than in the first 1900 years of the church. And through it all, what they're being protected uh, for, what they're being preserved for, is for the salvation that comes from God. And the Lamb's seal shows that he protects his servants from being deceived by the serpent or by the beast in Revelations 12, 13, and 16? Who can stand on the day of the Lamb's wrath? Only those who have the Lamb's seal of ownership. Now God's about to visit the earth with his wrath. But on the earth, mixed among the unbelieving and the godless, are his people. 
And what happens to them? They are sealed, and God's wrath will not fall on them. We'll hear later of the tribulations through which God's people have to pass, but nonetheless, they will be kept secure. Thus, the servants of God portray the company of victors or overcomers, as Jesus promised the church in Philadelphia back in Revelation 3. He said, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. So Jesus has given this promise to the church of Philadelphia, which was suffering. And uh, here we see some of this promise being fulfilled. However, remember, much of what we're getting is symbolic language. So you have to, you know, ask yourself, is this symbolic? And if so, what is it symbolizing? The symbolic character of John's visions show that we shouldn't expect this seal to appear as a visible mark on the physical foreheads of believers. We're not going to walk around with the name Jesus stamped in indelible ink. Sorry. But rather, just as Romans teaches us that true circumcision is circumcision of the heart, so the seal of God's ownership that marks us as God's own possession is the Holy Spirit. To better understand the seal John describes, we have to turn to the Apostle Paul, who uses the word seal three times, always in reference to the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ, and has anointed us, and has also put his seal on us, and given us his Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Then in Ephesians 1, he says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And then in Ephesians 4 he says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then finally we know that in the Bible the word name, because we're going to be sealed with his name, And a name is used to describe character or personality. To have a name written on oneself is to have uh, that person's character imprinted into your own being. And therefore, to be sealed with the seal of the living God is to have the character of the living God written into our hearts and minds. To be sealed with the name of the Lamb is to have the character of the Lamb um, written into the very fabric of our being. Now, having the seal on the forehead, what does that symbolize? I think it just implies that this seal is obvious. It's obvious to anyone who's looking at us. People should see something different about you. Yes, they can see our brokenness, but they should also see Christ in us. They should be able to see something of the goodness and the holiness of God the Father and the sacrificial love of his Son, our Savior. If you remember, we speak of uh, the sacraments as signs and seals of the covenant. In baptism, which symbolizes receiving the Holy Spirit, 
God seals us by giving us his name. In the Lord's Supper, we're promised his presence. God's seal is more than a wax emblem pressed on paper. It's his own presence promised to his people in the person of the Holy Spirit. And it is this seal, the Holy Spirit, who reproduces the character of the Lamb in us, who protects us from the ultimate consequences of God's wrath, who enables us not to compromise when the pressure comes, who enables us to go through tribulation and suffering and keep the faith. When we're sealed, we're not made safe, we're made secure. And nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And when people can see that perseverance and faith and character in us as a church, then we truly make up the people of the next part of the vision, which is in verses 4 through 8, which is of the church militant. The church militant. Verses 4 through 8. It says, And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Nephtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulon, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. So now we get to the question I opened with. Just who are the 144,000? Said the problem is that number is symbolic, but symbolic of what? Does this number mean that the 12 tribes of Israel multiplied by the 12 apostles of the Lamb times 1,000? Is this 12 squared times 10 cubed? Now, this is taken from the Old Testament, we think. It's using Hebrew thought. In Hebrew thinking, to have something multiplied by 10 means it's big. And then to have it multiplied by 10 again means it's really big. And then to have it multiplied by 10 a third time is Hebrew for it's really, really big. So what does that mean? A, we don't know for sure because the text doesn't say. But since all numbers in Revelation are symbolic, it seems to symbolize a huge number of God's people. And all these numbers, 12 and 12,000 and 144 and 144,000, they're all going to return in Revelation 21 to describe the new Jerusalem. So we're going to see them all again. Now these people are described as belonging to the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from each tribe. And it's believed by some that this group uh, represents a Jewish remnant that's converted to faith in Jesus the Messiah by the rapture of the church prior to the tribulation. That's according to the dispensational view with which I clearly do not agree. They think Gentile believers won't go through the tribulation, and therefore only faithful Israelites are going to need God's protective seal. 
And as appealing as this view is for those of us who don't look forward to suffering, again, there are too many problems here for us to list. In the first place, this list of the 12 tribes doesn't correspond to any of the ways the tribes are listed in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Reuben always comes first as the oldest son. But here, Judah is promoted to first place, the first position as the tribe of the Messiah. Remember, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Then we see Israel, or Jacob, essentially had four wives, Leah, Rachel, and then he had two concubines. And here we see the four sons of Joseph's concubines are promoted to positions three, four, five, and six. Normally, they're at the end of the list because they're not of the covenant. They're not Jewish. (coughs) But now they're promoted above the sons of his wives, Leah and Rachel. And the elevation of the descendants of the women who were outsiders to the covenant family signifies the inclusion of Gentiles among the servants of God. And then Dan is missing. He's replaced by Joseph's son, Israel's grandson, Manasseh. Why? Why has Dan been dropped from the list and Manasseh added in? Because the tribe of Dan... Most of you who are named Dan are actually named Daniel after the prophet, not after this tribe. Don't panic. (laughs) But the tribe of Dan is notorious in Israel's history for leading the northern kingdom of Israel into idolatry and apostasy. Now, there are some that say when we see Israel in the Bible, it always means Israel as in the nation state in the Middle East. It's never used to refer to Gentiles. That's not true. In Galatians alone, Paul writes, in Galatians 3, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. In Galatians 6, writing to the church, Paul says, as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be on them and upon the Israel of God. One scholar reminds us that if the promise concerning the lion of Judah is fulfilled through the blood of the Lamb, then the promises concerning the tribe of Judah are also fulfilled through the people who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. So we see some things happening here in this list. This is one of those boring lists in the Bible that you just sort of skip over and jump down. But in every list like this in the Bible, there's always some meaning. God doesn't put stuff in just because he needs to take up space. You know, God doesn't use filler. So if it's there, it's there for a reason. It's up to us to ask, why is it here? And I think the order of the tribes here symbolizes first the reign of Jesus from the tribe of Judah. He's exalted to the first position. Second, we have the incorporation of the Gentiles. And then we have the exclusion of idolaters from the covenant community that God is shielding from his wrath. So that's the first issue with the 144,000. 
Second, the sealing of this tribe does seem to fulfill the promise that were made to overcomers of every race in the letter to Philadelphia in Revelation 3, which we already read. Third, in Revelation 14, John's vision of the Lamb's army on Zion, uh, the 144,000 are identified as redeemed. It says, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. We know from Revelation 5 that the redeemed come from all people groups. Where there it says, They sang a new song, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So in this case, the 144,000 symbolize not delayed believers from a single ethnic group, the Jews, but the faithful martyrs from all peoples who through their death are gathered first into God's presence. Their white robes show us that these joyful victors are paradoxically the martyrs that John saw beneath the altar in Revelation 6, whose lament was answered by God's gift of the white robes. Then fourth, they're portrayed in Revelation 14 as a military force of men who exemplify spiritual purity. Now, background for this type of listing comes to us from the book of Numbers. Numbers gets its name because it opens with a census and it closes with a census. But the background there is one of getting ready for war. In Numbers chapter 1, God commands Moses to take a census of all the congregations of the people of Israel by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male head by head from 20 years old and up, all in Israel who are able to go to war. You and Aaron shall list them company by company. And I think that what we have here in Revelation 7 is a symbolic military census of the church militant, those who are able to go to war. Don't miss this imagery. The church of Jesus Christ on the earth is pictured in terms of an army numbered and prepared for battle against the forces of darkness in this present evil age. But that's not all we get here. Because there's another twist in this chapter. Do you remember the hear and see metaphor that we've gotten in Revelation? Revelation 1, John said, I heard a voice like a trumpet. Then I turned, I saw one like a son of man. In Revelation 4, John said, I heard of a lion of Judah. And then I turned and I saw a lamb slain those standing. This is another one of those situations because John hears about an army of 144,000. But then he looks and sees something completely different. And so the answer to this question, who can stand, doesn't end with the sound of the martyrs who form the army of the Lord. In other words, the church militant here on earth. But also includes a picture of those who are already victorious by the blood of the Lamb. In other words, the church triumphant. 
the church in heaven. Starting at verse 9, through, ver through the end of the chapter, verse 17, the church triumphant. It says, after this, again, new vision, I looked. Before he heard, now he looked. Behold, a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Remember, the question at the end of chapter 6 was, who can stand? And here we find a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne. These are the people who can stand. They're standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And the reference here to this great multitude of all the tongues, tribes, and nations suggests we're looking at the entire church, all Christians, past, present, and future. That way of speaking about the church occurs a number of times in Revelation. And this is a reminder to us the great covenant promise that God made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis. Genesis 15, he told Abraham, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then God said to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. And in Genesis 17, he said, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And this vision of Revelation 7, these promises have been gloriously and finally fulfilled. Now again, there are some interpretive options. There's lots of views. But it seems most likely that we have the same group of people here in heaven as the previous group on earth. It is the same group viewed from two different vantage points, earth and heaven. He's seeing the church, the church militant on earth, and now the church triumphant in heaven. The 144,000 was the church Militant, the church on earth, poised on the threshold of a great tribulation at the end of the world, about which we're going to hear a whole lot more as Revelation unfolds. But the great multitude is that same people having endured the uh, tribulation and now safely in heaven as the church triumphant. <clears throat> the difference between these two groups is not a matter of quantity. It's not a matter of ethnicity but it's merely a matter of location. 
The sealed and numbered army of Israel shows the faithful church on earth, shielded from apostasy and from uh, God's wrath by the Lamb bearing his name, sealed by his Spirit. And the assembly of nations shows the victorious church in heaven, emerging triumphant from the tribulation, not through some painless rapture, but as we'll see again in Revelation 12, through a faithful death. They have known hunger and thirst and exposure and tears, but the woes to be released upon the earth in final judgment of sin cannot touch those who dwell in God's sanctuary, shepherded by the Lamb and brought to the springs of the water of life. <clears throat> Verse 14 says that these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. The word tribulation comes from the Greek word thalipsis. Got to practice that one. Thalipsis. <clears throat> it means crushing pressure. He's referring to the pressure that naturally occurs when kingdoms collide. <clears throat> He's referring to the pressure along that line where the kingdom of God collides with the kingdoms of this world who are in rebellion against God. Now, the best picture of this is an earthquake with which we're now all so familiar. Beneath the earth's crust are Teutonic plates that slowly move and collide with each other, creating massive pressure. And when the pressure gets too great, when the thalipsis is too strong, they suddenly give way and move, causing massive damage to the earth above. John is writing about a mega thalipsis that happens when the kingdom of God collides with the world. But again, the big question is, so when does this take place? In John's mind, it started when Jesus came into the world on that Christmas Eve so long ago. The great tribulation began with the birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus of Nazareth. Continued with Pentecost, with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, who is the personal embodiment of the kingdom. And the tribulation has been on since Jesus came. It was on in John's day. Remember how John introduced himself to us back in Revelation 1? I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. It was on then. That's why he's in exile. It's been on throughout church history. It's on right now. Just ask believers in China and in the Muslim world, in Myanmar, where Marie is. And the Bible says it will intensify as we get closer to the end. We're seeing the church grow throughout the world, but we're also seeing persecution of the church grow throughout the world. Kingdoms are colliding. And it's been that way ever since the angels filled the sky and said, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It is on right now because the kingdom is on right now. Tribulation, kingdom, perseverance, and faith, they all go together. They already go together. They always go together. And thus the answer to the question, who can stand 
is answered with a roster of Israel's uh, tribes symbolizing the church on earth. And then this vision of those who have emerged safe from the tribulation, an uncountable congregation from every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And as Judah's lion proved to be the slain lamb who displayed incredible royal power through the weakness of a sacrificial death. So the flock he protects sounds like a precisely numbered, exclusive Israelite army braced for battle. But it looks like a countless international crowd celebrating a victory already won. The victory was won by the Lamb when he was slain to redeem this multitude from the people to become kingdom, a kingdom and priest to our God. So that's Revelation 7. Lots of images, lots of symbols, lots of hard stuff to understand. But what does it teach us about the Lamb? Remember, the book of Revelation is all about Jesus. So what does it teach us? I think there's three truths about the Lamb that we can pull out. <clears throat> First, we see that he reigns supremely. He reigns supremely. Here we see the hand of God withholding judgment from his people, pouring forth the riches of his grace. God's angels minister on behalf of those, as Revelation, as uh, Hebrews 1 tells us, uh, those who are to inherit salvation. And as the bride of Christ, we're kept secure and sealed as a sign of our identification with Christ. We're given his name. It's a symbol of marriage. John's readers would have been encouraged to know that even as the whole world is in the midst of anarchy, and upheaval, even as they're suffering greatly, even as they face martyrdom, their journey to heaven is secure. Nothing can separate the flock from the lamb who is now their shepherd. Second, we see he redeems abundantly. He redeems abundantly. We're given a glimpse of this totality of redeemed people, a number no man can count. And once again, we're exposed to this theme uh, running throughout uh, Revelation. God is faithful to the covenant he made with Abraham. And John goes from hearing about this group to actually seeing them. It's this great assembly that's able to stand before the throne and cry out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And they can do that because they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And then third, we see that Jesus loves lavishly. He loves lavishly. Read again the last two verses. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the fulfillment of everything that's promised in the name of Emmanuel. All hunger and thirst is satisfied forever. All pain and sorrow and sadness, which overwhelm life on this side of heaven, is going to be gone forever. All of God's provisions and sovereign dealings with us will be made clear. Even those things that we have despised the most, 
the things that have caused us uh, to question the mercy and the might of God will be resolved once and for all. And these visions assure us, the flock, that nothing in the present or the future will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. And those sealed by God's name as his treasure are secure from the wrath to come. They're the people of his covenant portrayed as the 12 tribes. But now that the lamb has conquered through his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead, God's covenant embraces all nations, tribes, peoples, and languages. After all, he's the king. And he's the king over all the people. And he's coming for those he loves, and he knows who they are, for he has sealed them with his spirit. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for again revealing Jesus to us. For those of us who need a new perspective on our world or on our life, on all those questions we can't answer this side of heaven, Enable us to really see with the eyes of faith. Help us to focus on Jesus. Use these visions of revelation to change us into people who trust you no matter the circumstances. In the name of your Son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.